0: Welcome to Oddments 22. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This week, we'll explore some missing UFOs. Any color, so long as it's black, the shellfish conundrum, and artomats. But first, it's time for a mother and child reunion, presented to you by one Paul Simon. No, I would not give you false hope on this train. Mother and Child Reunion was Paul Simon's first release as a Garfunkel-less solo artist more than 40 years ago, and it has a number of strange elements that aren't apparent at a first listen. Paul said he wrote the song in response to the loss of his pet dog in a traffic accident. He had never felt such a loss before and needed to find a way to express the thought that maybe someday they'd be reunited. But the song refers to mother and child, so how does that relate to his dog? It doesn't. It relates to Chinese food. In many Chinese restaurants in the U.S., a dish comprised of chicken and eggs is called Mother and Child Reunion. in a bit. Paul noticed this and decided to use it as the theme for his song. And when he thought of being reunited with his beloved pet, this reunion came to mind. I can't help but recall Deuteronomy 1421. But the oddity of this catchy tune doesn't stop there. It turns out it was the first popular recording from a well-known white artist performed in reggae style. It was recorded in Jamaica with Jimmy Cliff's band. This song paved the way for acts like The Clash and The Police to use reggae as part of their signature style. But why would a song about a dead dog and Chinese food be recorded in reggae style? one story says that this song is a response to jimmy cliff's vietnam which tells the tale of a mother learning that her son had been killed in the war if you consider that the song is about the immeasurable loss of a loved one it all makes some sort of sad and cathartic sense the song reached number five on the u.s charts but managed to hit number three in norway and number one in south africa The first flying saucer was reported in 1947, when pilot Ken Arnold reported seeing something in the air shaped like a saucer, disc, or pie plate. The media picked it up, and soon there were thousands of sightings across the world. Countless movies and TV series have been made on the subject, and reports still come in, but far fewer than during the 1950s or 1970s. The question is, why? One conclusion would be that the aliens have simply stopped visiting us. But there is another explanation that makes more sense. Ever since the 1980s, video cameras have become common. Today, nearly everyone has a high-quality recorder in their pocket in the form of a smartphone. With all these cameras out there, visiting aliens should be caught more often, and less blurry than ever before. In short, more better cameras should equal more better images of aliens visiting us. But we don't have them. And the answer could be simply because everyone has cameras. More camera ownership means more understanding of how they work and how easy it is to make something odd appear. There is less chance for blurry images, which means things are easier to identify. A UFO, unidentified flying object, filmed in the 1950s could be a flock of birds or a group of mylar balloons today. We also have the government admission that many of the UFO sightings in the past were experimental aircraft, such as a stealth bomber. They were happy that the public was seeing aliens rather than their latest equipment. Of course, none of this means that aliens aren't visiting us. There just isn't any reason to believe that they are. Our current understanding of physics seems to prohibit the type of long-range travel that would be needed for beings from another planet to visit us. And finally, the last piece of the puzzle is the old adage, believing is seeing. Yes, that's right. In order to see something, you have to believe it's there. Once someone plants the idea that those specks in the sky are aliens, you can believe that they are. Fewer media sources and movies are planting that idea today, and instead have replaced them with such things as chemtrails. Fortunately for us, the only thing it takes to dispel these beliefs is a little bit of curiosity and a little bit of time. <laughs> Henry Ford is quoted as saying, you can have any color you want, so long as it's black. And like so many quotes, there is dispute that it was ever said. Fortunately, no one is ascribing it to Mark Twain. Oh, I never said that. But whether Ford said it or not, he certainly did write it. In his book, My Life and Work, published in 1922, the entire quote is as follows. Therefore, in 1909, I announced one morning, without any previous warning, that in the future we were going to build only one model, that the model was going to be Model T and that the chassis would be exactly the same for all cars. And I remarked, any customer can have a car painted any color that he wants so long as it is black. What's odd about this statement is that Model Ts were available in a variety of colors, at least until 1915. In fact, up until that point, black wasn't even an option. But from 1915 to 1925, black was the only option but why? A common answer given to this is that black was chosen because it was fastest to dry. Fast drying paint meant less time on the production line and as we all know Ford was all about efficiency. There's a problem with this argument though. While some black paints do dry quickly Ford didn't use just one on his cars. In fact a Model T completed between 1915 and 1925 would have had as many as 30 different kinds of black paint on it all with different drying times. While it's possible that some key components such as the body benefited from a quick drying time and that all the other parts were painted black to match, it's likely that the reason black was chosen was much simpler. It was a cheap, forgiving paint. By painting everything black, Ford didn't have to worry about having his production line retool for different colors. He also didn't have to worry about batches of paint being slightly different, and any nicks or scratches could easily be painted over. This argument gets a boost from the fact that during the years 1915 through 1925, the automobile was undergoing a transition from a luxury that only the wealthy could afford to something an everyday person might have. The value then was in getting as many cars out as possible, and there was no need to lure someone in with a pretty paint color. In 1926, Ford introduced green and red in order to offer some variety and compete with other car companies who were gaining market share. In 1927, the Model T was available in ten colors, including black and four shades of green. That would be the last year of Model T production, as it was replaced by the Model A, a much more substantial vehicle with twice the top speed and a wide variety of body types and, yes, colors. Way back in 1997, my then 18-month-old son was enjoying a complicated dish of Asian seafood when his face blew up like Violet Beauregard chewing Willy Wonka's experimental gum. You're blowing up! I feel funny! I'm not surprised. Off we went to the emergency room, and after some oxygen and Benadryl, we were instructed to follow up with an allergist. A complicated series of food restrictions followed, and we learned that he was allergic to shellfish. This is a very serious allergy which can cause deadly anaphylaxis. Some people are so sensitive that even being in the same room as shellfish is risky. I took the warning seriously. Having taken a lot of biology in college, I asked the allergist what exactly shellfish meant. After all, it's a culinary term, not a taxonomic one. Shellfish includes species such as lobsters and shrimp, but also things like clams and mussels. Why would having a shell cause something to be hyperallergenic? These were totally different species, and even their shells were made of completely different materials. It turns out that no one knew until the mid-1990s, but the pattern was clear and the allergist was right. People who are known to be allergic to shrimp, for example, are often allergic to clams and mussels, even though there's no clear connection between crustaceans and mollusks, except that they live in the sea. Tuna fish live in the sea, too, but they don't cause reactions in people with shellfish allergies, so the sea isn't the connection. What could it be? Allergies are caused by the body overreacting to a protein. Scientists surmise that there must be some protein that crustaceans and mollusks share, and in 1993 they found it. It's called tropomyosin. In fact, they found several, but tropomyosin is the one that seems to be responsible for most reactions. It's a protein found in most animals, but it's found in greater concentrations in mollusks and crustaceans. It turns out that it's also found in great concentrations in insects as well, but as few people eat them in our culture, the allergy hasn't been expanded to shellfish and bugs allergy. But it does include things we don't think of as shellfish, such as octopus and squid. They're mollusks just like clams, and they have the same protein in large concentrations. So in this one instance, the culinary world knew something that science didn't, the classification of animals that live in the ocean and have shells is a useful one, even if it has nothing to do with the evolution of species. As for my son, he's been able to avoid eating shellfish for 18 years now, and though he'll likely have to avoid them for the rest of his life, he can at least now know why. And also why he should avoid chocolate-covered ants and fried crickets that are popping up in novelty shops. There was a time when vending machines were chic. Entire restaurants called automats featured complete meals vended course by course from coin-operated glass doors. Today, soda and snack machines are common, and weird Japanese machines get a lot of press. But the big moneymaker in vending was cigarettes. Cigarettes especially for machines found in bars. These once ubiquitous devices enticed nicotine-craving patrons to drop a few coins into the slot, which allowed them to choose one of 10 or 20 different brands. Most places in the United States have outlawed the use of cigarette vending machines, as they couldn't discriminate the legal age of the person using it. Cigarette boxes and packs are nearly all the same size and the machines took advantage of this. However, now that cigarette vending machines are illegal, what could these machines be used for? Since they're sized for cigarettes, and very few other products come in that size, it seems they're all destined for collectors and scrap piles. Enter Artomat, or rather enter Clark Whittington. Way back in 1997, he had the idea of repurposing a recently banned machine. After a fresh paint job and the creation of a box exactly the same size as a cigarette pack, Clark had created the first Artomat. The original machine dispensed black and white photographs for $1. Though this first incarnation was supposed to be a temporary exhibit, it proved to be so popular that he decided to democratize it and allow other artists to create art for the machines. It works like this. At 90 locations around the world, you can buy tokens, usually for $5, that will allow you to choose one of 10 or 20 different types of art. You might purchase earrings, small figurines, photographs, drawings, flip books, sculptures, basically anything that an artist can fit inside a cigarette pack sized box. The creators are known collectively as artists in cellophane. And then an interesting thing happens. As you stare at the machine, you have the thought, is this really worth $5? To help you make your decision, let me propose this. In the few locales where cigarette machines are still allowed, a pack of Marlboros will set you back $10. You could have two creative, permanent pieces of art for the same price as a pack of cigarettes. Suddenly, $5 seems like a bargain. And it is. In the three different art products I've sampled from the machines, the value was far more than the five dollars dropped through the slot. This art is done for art's sake, and you can be a part of it if you can find a machine. Artamat.org has a machine locator. We found ours in San Antonio, there's one in Chicago, and there are six at the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas. If you don't live near enough to a machine, you can also order cartons of twenty packs from the website. Don't worry, we won't judge. We can understand the addiction. And that's it for another Oddments. Thanks so much for listening, and we apologize for the erratic publishing schedule. We'll do what we can to keep things more on time. If you'd like to help encourage us, drop us a line at jeff at collegeofcuriosity.com. We can be shamed into punctuality. More information, as always, is available at collegeofcuriosity.com.